Welcome, everybody, to a special episode of the Cyber.Now podcast. My name is Nick Sturgeon. Thank you all for tuning in. This past week, I was able to sit down with Adam Krupp, who is running for the office of Indiana Attorney General, the chief legal officer for the state of Indiana. Really appreciative of Adam taking time from the campaign trail to sit down this past Monday at the Monon Coffee Company in Broad Ripple, Indiana. And thanks to the folks at Monon Coffee Company for allowing us to come in and record this interview. I do have to mention, and this is not a reflection whatsoever on Adam, his responses to my questions were fantastic. This really has to go to the audio quality. For some reason, I was having some issues with my laptop and voice meter banana, which is the virtual mixer that I use. Some reason, some settings got changed because I used my laptop a oh, month and a half ago or so for the Books Over Beer podcast that I do with my two buddies, Mike and Jonathan, and it worked fine. I don't know if it was an update to Windows that caused the audio quality issues that at least I'm noticing. Hopefully you guys won't notice it, and maybe I shouldn't have even said anything about it, but I wanted to make sure that I address kind of that elephant in the room. It sounds a little bit distant and it's not so much that the background noise there, it was perfect. I love the ambiance of recording in a coffee shop, but it sounds a little bit of what you would get from recording over a telephone onto a tape recording. That is my sense of it. To me, I think it sounds like a little bit of a radio row type of interview that you may hear, even like Tony Katz on WIBC when he is out at you know CPAC or some other type of media event where there's a ton of different reporters there. I hope that the audio quality doesn't detract from the conversation, the interview with Adam. The whole purpose, and like I mentioned during the interview, the reason I do these or like to do these meet the candidate type of shows is so you guys listening to it can get to know the person. Forget all of the political and party BS. It's getting down to know the individual. And I've known Adam for a couple years, and I will admit I'm probably a little bit biased because I do like him as an individual, regardless of, of anything else other than him as an individual. He has done amazing things for the Indiana Department of Revenue. His prior actions should speak volumes. Forget, again, the political party, whether you're a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Republican, vote for the individual, not the party. And looking at the individual, I'm a big fan of Adam. I think he, if elected, will be what Indiana needs for that position. But that's my opinion. 
do not just take my word for it. Listen to what he says in the interview. Look at what he has done for the state of Indiana over the past three years. Look at his responses and totality of the things in his resume to make that determination for yourself. That same thing should be done for every other political candidate that you will be voting for. But before we get into the interview with Adam, there is going to be some news about the podcast Cyber.Now coming out in the next week or so. So stay tuned for that. I will just say this. I'm not going anywhere. I will be continuing on with a cybersecurity-focused podcast. Big news about the direction of the show will be coming out in the next week or two. So stay tuned for that news. But until then, here is my interview with Adam Krupp. Good morning from the Monon Coffee Company in Broad Ripple, Indiana. This is Nick Sturgeon with the Cyber.Now podcast. Not for sure what episode number this actually is going to be, but we'll figure that out at post-production. I am here with what has really become the Meet the Candidates type of episode, special episode. Going back to 2018 when I spoke with a Senate candidate and even last year for those that have been listening to the podcast for a while, I reached out to some local candidates in Speedway and now I'm with a, another candidate, a almost, I, I want to say friend of the show because this is your second time on the show. <laughs> That's right, and I listen to the show. Yeah, well, we appreciate that. I'm here with Adam Krupp, who is running for the Republican nomination of for Attorney General, and we'll get into the details because the AG position is a little bit different, at least in the primary, than it is for some others. So we'll, we'll talk about those details. But Adam, thank you for joining me this morning, taking some time off of the campaign trail as we were talking a little bit before the, the we started recording. It's been busy, so thank you for taking some time out. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Uh, for the listeners out there, I am uh, sitting here with you in a different capacity, very different from last time when I was the commissioner for Indiana's Department of Revenue, and we talked about tax and government administration and what all that entails. And now we're here in a completely different context. Uh, I have moved on to a new chapter in my life, personally and professionally, but it's great to be here. The campaign trail is busy. It's taking me all over the state of Indiana, and I'm enjoying every day of it, meeting people, having great conversations about what they want out of Indiana's attorney general. Yeah, so uh, the reason I, I asked you on to the show was really because, personally, I think it's important that the individuals, the voters, know the candidates, not just what the material is, which is which is part of it. You know, you get the campaign flyers, but it's a whole nother thing when you can actually hear from a candidate have, and listen and get to know who they are what makes them the best fit for that position, whether it be at a town, state, or even national level. So 
it's really the the format of these, as I had just kind of came up with last night, Meet the Candidate episodes, isn't to be adversarial, isn't try to get anybody in a trick bag. It's really get so the candidate can come on and speak to the voters of who they are, unbiased, unfiltered, and just get to know the person. Because at the end of the day, we're people. The folks that make up state government are people. They're not some political party. They are individuals. So I, it's, again, I think it's important that we, to, for the listeners to set the, the base of why I am doing this. Because the media and all of the things that come a part of running for office can, can muddy the waters a little bit. Yeah, and I appreciate that very much. I mean, as you mentioned in the beginning, it's certainly part of the the flyers and the brochures and the mailers you can put out to say, here's who I am, here's what I stand for, here's why you should support the campaign. Everyone does that, and it's certainly part of the process. And and there are times, honestly, I've I've been on the receiving end of many of those flyers and postcards as a voter myself, and there are times when that can just become noise. And so it's more important to have a genuine, meaningful conversation, whether it's one-on-one or in a group, uh, having a cup of coffee, breakfast, lunch, town hall, you name it, or an interview just like this. Uh, I like to think of it more as a conversation where I would love for people to just hear me, uh, hear who I am, where I'm from, what's my story, and what I'd like to do for the state as Indiana's next attorney general. Uh, it, you won't hear me sort of badmouth anyone else running for this office because that's not what it's about. It's about why am I the right fit and what will I do for Hoosiers if I'm uh, nominated and then elected as our next attorney general. So let's let's talk about that a little bit since we kind of teased around it. The AG's position for the, the parties isn't decided at the primary ballot box. How is that decided? Yeah, for a lot of folks, it's kind of unique. And I have learned myself what this process is like. There's a state party convention. And this year, it's on June 20th. It'll be held in Indianapolis. And it features 1,800 delegates representing all 92 counties of Indiana. And some counties have over 100 delegates. Some counties have as few as two or three delegates, sort of based on population size. And everyone will come together under one roof. And the candidates will each get an opportunity, I believe it's 10 minutes, to get up on stage and tell their story and what they stand for and why they should be the nominee. But after that, uh, there's a a ballot, uh, in some cases multiple ballots, where 1,800 people decide who the party will nominate to then be on the general uh, election ballot in November for a statewide vote. So people have asked me, they said, well, when can I vote for you? And I said, well, if I get the party's nomination in June, I'll be on the ballot statewide in November. And then it always prompts the conversation about, well, what does that mean? I said, well, this the process of filing to be a delegate, which is closed. So now there's a list of, you know, everybody who's filed to be a delegate, some of whom are already locked in and some who will be on the May primary ballot because their particular district only has, let's say, seven or eight delegate slots. But 12 or 13 people in the party said, I want to be a delegate to the state convention. So they actually go through a voting process themselves on the May primary ballot. So it's somewhat unique. Uh, It's not your typical process in terms of what the average voter is used to of a primary and then a general election. But we are navigating through that process, and I am 
I am meeting potential delegates and confirmed delegates over a cup of coffee or a phone call just to talk about, you know, why I'm in this race, what I want to bring to the table, and really find out what they're looking for from our attorney general. Yeah, that's really good because I think that civics lesson really is kind of taken for granted that a lot of people don't, including myself, I didn't realize that until following you on your campaign trail that it was done at convention. I knew there was a convention. I knew there's some of that happened, but I, at least for the primary portion of it, did not know that. So if I didn't know it and I sort of follow politics, <laughs> I, I can't imagine the, the average person would have known that detail because you just think, well, you know, I vote for the candidates at, at you know, the right. primary election in May. Well, I've been around government a lot uh, going all the way back to 2004, 2005 when I clerked for Indiana's Court of Appeals. And I tell you, even working in the state house or working on the government center campus following politics, I was unaware of the convention process and the delegates and how they nominate uh, some of these statewide offices, like Attorney General. To me, that was that was something that I just didn't know about, but I've over the years started to understand that, and I've got to know it quite well uh, over the last <laughs> year or so. I, and I followed along in 2016 uh, when our party was nominating uh, for Attorney General. And 2018, there was a convention, didn't have contested races, but other statewide elected offices, such as the Secretary of State and the Treasurer and the Auditor, are also nominated by the party uh, with the 1,800 delegates at a convention that get together uh, in the summertime. Yep. So now that we've talked about just how this process is, and, and, and even so, the the effort at this point that you've been doing really has just been getting to know the 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 delegates. And I would imagine a little bit of potentially the voters for November should you get the nomination at yeah, the convention. Yeah, it's not exclusively uh, delegate outreach. Obviously, we want to know who they are and we want to start building relationships with them because, again, you don't always know who is confirmed delegate until a week after the primary. But also, yeah, there are people in the party and in each county throughout Indiana who will ultimately be voting in November. But we're also building relationships with local elected officials, county chairs who may or may not be delegates. Some of them run for delegates. Some of them are delegates. Some are not. But also state representatives and state senators who have conversations with people in their communities as well, because we want everybody to understand, you know, who I am, uh, why I'm doing this, what I'm going to bring to the table. And then ultimately, it's about relationships and trust. And I'm one of those guys, you know, forget politics for a moment, but I, it, when it's running a large agency the, um, for the benefit of all Hoosiers or just your day-to-day -day personal life, I want people to know they can trust me and believe what I'm saying uh, as opposed to just assuming that I have their trust because of a title that I hold or what my resume has on it. So it's it's building relationships. And we've been doing this for about 50 days now, 5-0. And in those 50 days since I officially entered the race, I have set foot in and had coffee, breakfast, lunch, or dinner uh, in 41 counties throughout Indiana. There's 92 total, so I've, I've got a ways to go. But I think over the next week or two, I'll cross off another 10 or 11 counties. And it, 
there's a path there before the convention uh, to hit all 92 and many of them multiple times. There are a few counties outside of where I live in Boone County, for example. Um, there are a few counties that I've been in three or four times just because I want to get there and I want to build those relationships. And we're just going to keep doing that from now until June 19th, 20th. Nice. So let's talk about the position of attorney general as it relates to how it fits into state government. As you mentioned, this is one of a a handful of top state officials that are voted on independently. You've got the governor, got secretary of state, treasurer an auditor plus the AG. And technically, and most people are familiar with the three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. How does this fit into that schematic? And I know this because I've, I've been in state government for a while, but for, again, our listeners that don't understand and may have some confusion with, you know, the state attorney general versus like the U.S. attorney general and how at the federal level, that's appointed by the president, and why not, you know, the same here in the in the state of Indiana? Yeah, there are a couple of ways in which you can describe, depending on, you know, what resonates with you. There are a couple of ways to describe the attorney general's office in the state of Indiana, which has uh, roughly 350 uh, public servants working for that office. It's, it's a large government agency. I have referred to it in some contexts as uh, Indiana's public law firm uh, because, you know, it, it is essentially that. It's there to serve a lot of attorneys who are there serving the state of Indiana. But you mentioned at the federal level with uh, the Department of Justice and the Attorney General being appointed by the President, it's the equivalent of Indiana's Department of Justice. It's just that the Attorney General is elected as opposed to appointed by the governor. And so at its core, the Attorney General uh, is, you know, the state's chief legal officer, someone who is there to enforce the laws and in some contexts prosecute cases, but mostly work with local elected prosecutors and work with local law enforcement officials, collaborate with those other branches of government, uh, the executive branch, legislative branch. And You know, one of the things that's really critical and at the core of the role of attorney general, which in Indiana is laid out in statute. You know, most states around the country, it's a constitutionally created office. Well, in Indiana, the state uh, general assembly created the attorney general's position. So they've they've laid out uh, in large part what the role is and what the scope of the responsibilities are. And at its core, being the state's chief legal officer, uh, they have decided that, you know, consumer protection and protecting and representing Hoosiers is a major component of the job. It also is the uh, appellate portion of representing the state uh, for criminal appeals. The attorney general's office represents the state whenever those occur. But also getting back to those other branches of government, in addition to advising and working with the legislature and defending the laws that they pass or providing great advice and counsel and letting them know which laws will be challenged if they are ultimately passed by the legislature or perhaps giving advice on the language which needs to make up those laws to prevent them from being defeated. You know, it's, it's about representing all of the executive branch agencies in court. 
when any agency like NDOT, the Indiana Department of Transportation, or Family and Social Services, BMV, or the Department of Revenue, when those agencies get sued uh, by citizens or, for, for example, for any of their failures, and let's be honest, those agencies get sued a lot. Whether they do a good job or a bad job, they get sued. Uh, we're a very litigious society. The Attorney General's office, by statute, is the representation and legal counsel for those executive branch agencies, which is why, at its core, and something I've, I've lived as the client, I've been on the other side, so for me, I have, I have a, a pretty good lens into what the Attorney General's role in that office can and cannot do. I've been a client of the Attorney General's office for several years as an agency head. But you've got to have a great relationship with the executive branch, uh, the governor's office, and the legislature if you're serving as their lawyer. I mean, the attorney general is the people's lawyer in Indiana. And when you're representing an agency, it's, it's just it comes down to the attorney-client relationship. You know, I've told people, think about it in your private lives. You know, if, if you get sued and you have an attorney at, in terms of professional responsibility and ethics, your attorney's primary job is to maintain that attorney-client relationship, keep you informed, always let you know when hearings are going to happen, when court rulings are coming, and let you see what the briefs are if you're going to argue, argue the issues in court. So having that relationship with the agencies is of paramount importance. And that's one of the things that we're going to do as Attorney General. Our team will really cultivate those relationships and build that trust as the attorney for the state, where the client is the state of Indiana, but really all the citizens of Indiana and those agencies that are there to administer and make sure government is efficient and operating properly. Nice. So one of the things that... I have heard it being, you know, kind of tuned into the Indiana political scene, if you will. The, again, not trying to talk bad of the current attorney general. I, I, I'm not into that. But there's been some controversy around the current AG. And it's, again, for those in in the know, if you will, there's been a bit of tension between the current AG and the governor's office, whether it be political or be because of some of these controversies. How does that hurt the overall citizen, and and how does that diminish the capability of the office? And and knowing that there is some damage that has been done, at least in the public eye, what are the, some of the things that you will do to help repair? that damage should you get the nomination and, and then get voted in? That's a great question. So let's start at the beginning of how you sort of preface that with there are some issues going on, some distractions. There's a process that's currently playing out in the courts. And I'm not here to speak negatively about anybody in the race, whether it's our incumbent attorney general or other candidate uh, who happens to be seeking this position. So I, I will just stick to the facts and say, you know, it is a fact that our governor and members of our legislature and other elected officials have called for the attorney general to resign. And they've been doing that consistently for the better part of over a year and a half now. And that is because of the events that took place. 
um, allegations were made, findings of fact have been made uh, by uh, disciplinary commission hearing officer, and now it's going to make its way to the Supreme Court to ultimately accept a recommendation to suspend our current attorney general and not automatically reinstate his license, uh, which is an issue. But let's talk about how that impacts the office and the administration of government in Indiana. And it it's impacts it in a very negative way. Because as I was saying about you know how you have to work with the governor's office, you have to represent executive branch agencies, you have to collaborate with the legislature every day as the chief legal officer, that's about relationships. And that's about being a consensus builder and a collaborator and being able to work with these folks. Because everybody, you know, when you're a separately elected official, you don't have to do anything that someone else wants you to do. But it's nice to be able to sit in a room together and sit down at a table and work together for the better of everybody in our state as citizens. That's not happening right now. That relationship is broken, which is why when I entered the race, I had a press conference and with prepared remarks, one of the things that I said is that, you know, Indiana needs to hire a new attorney because those relationships are broken. And it's the attorney-client relationship for the governor, the attorney-client relationship for our legislature, which when you're talking about the legislature, that is representing all of our citizens because those lawmakers are from all 92 counties and they've been elected by Hoosiers to represent them. So they need to be able to work with the attorney because the attorney, in this case, the attorney general, cannot actually have a conversation with you know, all 6.7 million Hoosiers or whatever the 2020 census reveals, maybe will grow to over 7 million. So you have to do that through the duly elected representatives from each county. So when we look at it and say, you know, how does that impact government in Indiana? It's not good. Uh, It's a negative impact. And the effective administration needs a group of people, separately elected officials, that can get along in professional contexts. Uh, You don't have to be the best of friends, but professionally, you have to get along. You have to work together. You have to respect each other's opinions and their viewpoints. And then at the end of the day, say, okay, let's do what's best for Indiana and let's do what's best for our citizens. We won't always agree. Lawyers rarely agree, especially when they're they're advocating zealously on behalf of their clients. But it's important that we try to get there and that that be the mindset and the goal. So if I am ultimately nominated, which I hope that I am, and if I'm fortunate enough to be Indiana's next attorney general, people will see, those who know me already and those who don't but are going to get to know me will see somebody who is very passionate and dedicated about public service and Indiana as a whole and is a collaborator and a consensus builder and someone who builds relationships with lawmakers and elected officials but also everyday Hoosiers and citizens to find out what they need, what they want, how the office can best represent them, and somebody who can work with all branches of government to serve our citizens on a daily basis. That's great to hear. And actually, there's a point that I I wanted to kind of expand on. It's been about a week or two ago, State House Happenings, Rob Kendall, Abdul Akeem Shabazz, co-host that uh, on WIBC as well as they do a podcast version of it. I know Rob and I've met Abdul um, and listened to him for years on uh, the various radio stations he's been on here in central Indiana. 
but there was a hint of I'll call it uh, speculation or um, even a little bit of a a dig. And I, I like Rob very much, so I'm not trying to call him out at all. And I'd poke fun of him um, it, to his face. Um, but there was a, a bit of hint of subtleness that because of the relationship with the governor and the current AG being a little bit tense, that even though the governor hasn't come out and and supported anybody at this point, that maybe that there was, oh, let me just, you know, come out and say it, that, you know, there's a push from him either personally or, you know, behind the scenes to get you into to running. Again, it's, I'm, I'm kind of filling in between the lines here from uh, that episode. What would you say to a remark like that, that it's just... You know, there's some pressure there or some support there from the governor because of that tension currently between him and the current AG. Well, a couple of points to make there. First, I'll, I'll say I listened to that same episode of State House Happenings with Abdul and Rob, and I listened to Rob Kennel on 93.1, just like I listened to Abdul and everybody else. And we've never actually met or had a conversation, but I do listen to the show, and I listen to that particular episode. I'll just come right out and say that any suggestion that I was asked to run or the governor had any hand in or say in getting me to do this is just completely inaccurate, false. It just didn't happen. I have been a public servant for better part of a decade under the last three governor's administrations. So I, Governor Daniels and his team brought me into state government uh, as an attorney representing the state. Uh, I then served under the Pence administration, and then I approached the transition team after Governor Holcomb was elected and offered my services. I said, just put me wherever you need me because I love government. I'm, I'm a Hoosier, and I'm passionate about public service. So I was appointed by Governor Holcomb to lead the Department of Revenue through a three-year cultural and technological transformation, and I think we were very successful in doing that. I'm a lawyer at heart. Uh, That's what I've I've done for the last 17 years, and I've always had this thought that, you know, the Attorney General is such a great position in Indiana because it combines that, you know, legal background and skills, because you've got to be a great attorney, but it also gives brings in that component of being an organizational leader. And you don't often find that, especially in a government space where you get to be a great lawyer, but also a great organizational leader. As we mentioned and talked about a little earlier, there's there's 350 people. That's a large government agency. Yep. So you get an opportunity to lead an agency, but also practice law on a day-to-day basis. I didn't get to practice law on a day-to-day basis leading Indiana's Department of Revenue, which and I miss that very much. Uh, I was encouraged by friends, classmates from law school, uh, which now law school, you know, we're talking the early 2000s, people professionally who have said, you would be great at this. I I want you to think about that. Uh, My brother, who's my best friend in life, he's only 14 months older. Uh, We only live 20 minutes away. He strongly encouraged me to do this. Folks that said, you've got the skills, you've got the relationships, uh, you've got the leadership ability. You should really think about running for attorney general for our state. And I said, you know, it is an opportunity to do more. And a long time ago, I thought that would be a great job. So, uh, yeah, I started thinking about that. And long story short, the truth of the matter, if we're trying to take a sound bite and we're going to shorten it up for a quick uh, for a quick clip about a response to, you know, the governor's involvement or getting me to do this. 
I will say, I will go on the record, it is a fact. The first conversation he and I had about this was when I went into his office and told him I was going to resign from Indiana's Department of Revenue. I thanked him for the opportunity because obviously he appointed me to that role over three years ago. Uh, and we talked about the cultural transformation and how you know successful things had been about repairing relationships. And I, I slid a resignation letter across the desk and said, you know, here's what I want to do. And there's, you know, nobody's going to talk me out of it. But I would, you know, appreciate the opportunity to transition any successor that you choose because of just how important culture is for that particular agency. He thanked me for my work. Uh, he was very appreciative of all that we've done there. People have encouraged him to run for office, so he understood and appreciated what that's like. Uh, he told me that running for statewide office is going to be a real challenge. Uh, personally, I've got a family. I've got a wife and two small boys ages six and two. We're, we've, uh, we've seen what that's like. Uh, but he didn't encourage me to do it. He didn't ask me to do it. Uh, he thanked me for my service and uh, wished me luck. And that is truly the extent of it. Well, that's great. I just, I'm, since I had the opportunity and that, that conversation and that the podcast came out, I wanted to give you a chance to to respond to it. And I appreciate you for being completely open and honest with that. Yeah. Uh, and, and let me add, yeah. I, I told him, I said, I'm not here for an endorsement. I don't expect an endorsement uh, as governor and uh, a member of the Republican Party in a, in a convention or a primary uh, often folks say you know endorsements you know you got to be careful with that and I said I, I respect whatever you want to do there but I'm not here for an endorsement and I flat out told him I said I'm gonna go out there and I think I can do this on my own well that's good and having seen your success with that transformation at the Department of Revenue over from the agency it was before to what it is now I have no doubt in my mind <laughs> that you could accomplish anything you set your your mind to. And I think it's important that with the separations of these independently elected offices that there be that independence. I mean, there's a reason that they are independently elected. But on the other hand, as you mentioned, you've got to be able to work with your counterparts in, in state government to do what's best for the citizens. Ultimately, public servants and service is there to make sure that we as the, the citizens of the state are able to do the things that we need to do to be Hoosiers, to run our businesses, to to whatever that we decide to do with our lives. So. Yeah, and let's be clear about something. It, it, it would be great because the governor and I uh, can work together, just like I can work with the legislature and everyone else who's involved in the process. But I'm by no means going to be a rubber stamp, and I'm not going to be there to say, oh, yes, governor, whatever you want. It's independent. It's separately elected. It serves as a watchdog, as a chief, uh, state's chief legal officer. And again, at its core, while it represents the executive branch agencies in court, it is, you know, about representing the people of Indiana. It's consumer protection mechanism for our state. And there are going to be times, uh, I, I hope not, but it's inevitable and foreseeable at some point where state agencies may overreach their uh, obligations, responsibilities, and legal authority. And the attorney general's office may have to insert themselves into the equation and say, now hold on, government agency X, you can't do that. 
And I understand that you want to create or pass a rule that impacts our citizens in this certain way to administer your agency. And as an executive branch agency and we're there to represent you, that's not going to pass and we can't support that. So that's where that independence comes into play. And there may be situations where the governor says, well, I want, you know, the BMV or INDOT or FSSA or DCS to go down this path um, administratively through rulemaking process. Attorney General's office may have to jump in and say, sorry, that's not going to cut it. And again, I'm not going to be there to just rubber stamp anything that the governor wants to do. No, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, the Again, that independence, I think, is what makes that position what it is to the state. I, even as agency heads, you know, there's sometimes, hey, boss, <laughs> you may, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do this if you really want to, but, you know, to be able to not just be a, a yes man, but challenge and in a respective way <laughs> uh, to to that other power, but even that delicate balance, not to say necessarily peers or anything like that, but to be a, a good attorney to the state, to be doing what is best for the individuals and the citizens of the state. I mean, that that does take a bit of courage <laughs> to say, mm, especially in the same party when there's some politics that are always at play, whether you want them to be at or not, to go, this is not what's best for the state. And ultimately, 99% of the people in it that are representing us at the state house whether in one of the three branches, are doing it because they want to serve this this state in the best potential or best way that they know how. But there's times that you just have to say, mm, nope, and have that courage to say no, even if it is going against some other interests. Yeah, and to your point, you know, running an agency uh, in a particular governor's administration, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where you can have thoughts, opinions, and you can be bold, and you could suggest ideas, but at the end of the day, you aren't the person calling the shots, um, as it, you know, may be a policy that impacts everybody. You, you need to get blessing, or you sometimes are told, this is what you're going to do, and this is why you're going to do it, and you may have thoughts or opinions that go a different direction, but at the end of the day, you need to follow those marching orders. It's very different as the attorney general because it is a separately elected official. Um, and you get to say, you know, I appreciate your input, but this is how we're going to do that. And this is how I'm going to run my organization. So it's very uh, it's unique in terms of the perspectives that if you're running an agency that's appointed versus one that's elected. Um, and I, I think we'll be able to succeed in that context as well. It's different from the past, but I can always take the experiences of the past and incorporate those into how we run the Office of Attorney General for Indiana. And to your point about folks in the State House and, and the political part of this process is, yes, it, you know, there are politics here. Uh, it's a political role. I don't believe that you need to be a politician to serve as Attorney General. And I'll be frank with you and anybody listening, I, at my core, I'm not a politician. I mean, this is the first uh, elected office that I have sought. This is my first campaign, and it's a statewide race. But what I've, you know, preached to folks and said is, you know, that's that's a weakness. You know, people always say, well, what's your weakness? Because everybody has one. I'll say, well, I've never run for office before. 
I don't believe that Indiana's attorney general needs to be a classic politician. I think Indiana's attorney general needs to be a great lawyer and a great organizational leader. And there's a big difference and there's a gap there between being an organizational leader who has had experience running uh, large groups of people in an organization and building a culture and focusing on serving and delivering customer service while being also a great lawyer and having worked in law firms and representing agencies and Hoosiers through uh, the legal work. That's different from being a politician. Now, that said, I've served under and worked for and been an advisor to Indiana's last three governors. So I do have the experience when it comes to you know, the political side of this and what it's like to take shots or to make tough decisions that ultimately will be criticized by part of our state. Uh, because in politics, it doesn't matter what decision you make. If you're a member of one party or the other, <clears throat> the other party is going to find a reason to disagree with you. And honestly, that's not all that different from running a large organization with, you know, for example, the Department of Revenue, over 700 employees. There are things we did, ideas that I proposed or programs that we rolled out, which were designed and exclusively for the benefit of employees. And there were some employees that hated it. The majority, I like to think, supported it. But there were employees that didn't like anything I did because uh, maybe I was appointed by a Republican governor. Because you don't have to be a Republican to work in a, 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 a government agency <laughs> yeah. that it went under a Republican governor. Um, there are people that didn't like me because of the way I looked, the way I talked. You know, and that's just life. There's always going to be a percentage of an organization or population or voter base that aren't going to agree with you and maybe just are, are wired to not like you. So having been around our last three governors, observed how they work, how they navigate those waters, I think is going to be incredibly valuable and extremely beneficial to me now running for office, which, you know, for the first time, uh, but there's some good that comes along with that. Yep. No, very good points. Now, going back a little bit, what did your family say? What did your wife say when you went to her and go, hey, honey, I wanted, I got an idea. I want to quit my job <laughs> and, and go run for AG. Because I'm, I'm sure if it was my wife, she's like, you're doing what? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned quitting your job because, I, you know, I resigned. Uh, I am not pulling double duty here. I'm not trying to serve the state as commissioner of the Department of Revenue anymore. I, I'm out. Uh, I am campaigning full time, uh, and I think that's what this requires. But my wife, Rachel, uh, she she said, "Well, I you know I figured you were going down this path at some point, and that's going to be really tough. Um, what about our kids? You know, like I said, I've got a six-year-old and a two-year-old, both boys. One's in kindergarten, one's in preschool." And we're all having to get used to this new way of life. And we're all having to get used to uh, a schedule that's not as predictable day to day. Now, I put in a ton of hours everywhere I work. I've just, I'm wired that way. I wasn't a government employee that was in at a certain time and out at a certain time. Uh, I missed a lot of dinners and I was home far too late, far too often. So campaigning is somewhat similar to what we're used to but very different in that I'm actually home a little bit more during the days when I'm not traveling, uh, when I'm spending time just working the phones or 
strategizing about where I'm going to go in the future uh, throughout the state to go meet with people. Um, so there are days to our family's benefit now where they all get home around three o'clock. My wife's a preschool teacher. So when uh, the kids come home with her, some days I'm actually there. I'm sitting at the kitchen table working. <laughs> and so it's like, wait a minute, we actually have more time together. Yeah. This, this isn't what we thought it was going to be. But on the flip side of that, and especially in a, a convention race instead of a primary, a convention race, the Republican Party for delegates, we do these things called Lincoln Day dinners where each county hosts one and all the Republicans from that county get together at night to have a dinner. Well, those dinners are almost every night of the week from now until May and and literally some weeks it's six nights and so I won't be home for dinner with the family uh, and maybe to put the kids to bed uh, which which is tough and that's going to take a toll and we're navigating through that process uh, not every day is going to be like oh we're so happy you're doing this and, uh, <laughs> but that's okay that's the grind of any campaign and anybody that runs for office with a family but when your family supports you and they know at your heart that you are a public servant and you love Indiana and want government to work for and serve the people, uh, they believe in you and they trust the process and they know that campaigning ha is a finite period because at the end of it, there's a greater good and, and you then have a bigger opportunity to do more. And so we're, we're navigating through it. We're having fun. We're enjoying the process. Uh, some days are better than others, but honestly, uh, I, I couldn't do it without my family uh, and just knowing that at the end of this process uh, if I get the nomination and ultimately am successful statewide on the ballot that I will have a family right there with me and I'll have opportunities to come home and have dinner with the family maybe in ways that I didn't before because I spent too many hours at the office uh, worrying about my staff of 700 people knowing that they're there for me it just makes all the difference in the world. Nice. So how has the support from folks like myself, the, the folks that you're meeting at these dinners, how has that been? Are you getting some real positive feedback, some positive support? What is your sense of how the campaign's going so far? There's a path to do this, and I'm really excited and energized every time I get out on the road or I sit down in a coffee shop or pick up the phone or dial folks myself and have a conversation and a positive interaction. Uh, there are days where I get to sit down with six or seven folks who have filed to be delegates to the convention, and they might be in an uncontested race, so we know right now they will be delegates to the convention. And I sit down and have a cup of coffee with them for an hour and a half and I tell my story what I've done professionally who I am as a person we talk about the AG's office what they're looking for I take any and every question and at the end of it I just I feel energized there are people in this world who get their energy from other people and I'm one of those um, so there are days where I say gosh I wish I had more time until the convention because I want the opportunity and ability to talk to every single person who will be a delegate at that convention. Whether they're predisposed to vote for me or someone else, I want to give them the opportunity to at least know I'm in this race and talk to them. So Lincoln Day dinners and traveling throughout the state and having these interactions, I feel really good about where we are as a campaign. 
Uh, I feel I had volunteers this past weekend doing some of the more traditional campaign activity of stuffing envelopes and mailing out brochures and information about who I am to delegates that haven't had an opportunity yet to meet me. But again, when you're someone that gets energy from other people and you're all about building relationships and trust, this particular format I'm really enjoying and I like where we are. There's still plenty of time to build relationships and get in front of folks that don't yet know who I am, which is part of the process. I don't shy away from it. You know, some people could say, gosh, it's the campaigning side that I just don't like. I don't want to have to go to these dinners every night, or I don't want to have to pick up the phone, or I don't want to knock on doors. I enjoy that process. And this is a numbers game. Again, there are 1,800 delegates who decide the nominee for the party on June 20th. And you have to start counting those numbers and you have to decide, just like these presidential candidates who people are out there supporting, they're raising money. And ultimately they decide, though, the math isn't there. So when they drop out, you always hear that there wasn't a path to get this done. So I'm going to do what's best for the party and step aside. And we just heard that the other day on the Democrat side. Uh, When I look at this race in terms of delegates and getting a nomination at a convention, we're out there raising money. We're generating support. And with the numbers game, I see a path to get this done. And I'm only going to keep working hard to grow that number uh, because it's a majority of the delegates is what it takes to get the nomination. So if they're 1,800, you're looking at 901. I'd love to get more than 901, but the goal is to keep increasing that number one by one each day as we get closer to the convention, and I really like where we are. Nice. Good to hear. So I'd be a little bit remiss to not ask a cybersecurity question because this is a cybersecurity podcast. One of the responsibilities outside of – I would say it, it lines up with consumer protection, but more so specifically within the AG's office, it's its own office on the identity theft section. Privacy issues that are coming out with these data breaches and the identity theft that can happen as a result of those data breaches. What is, and it may be a little bit too early in the game to to, to talk about this specifically, but what are your thoughts of how the AG's office can help protect Hoosiers when it comes to cybercrime and these data breaches and the privacy issues that we're seeing with companies like Facebook and Google, or and it doesn't necessarily limit it to those folks, but they're the, the big names out there. So what are, what are kind of your thoughts of how you, if you were to get this office, would help us as citizens um, fight that battle? Well, it's never too early to talk about it. I'm glad you brought it up. Because in my press conference, when I jumped in this race officially, uh, we laid out a platform of here are things that I want to focus on and I want to bring to the Office of Attorney General. These are key initiatives that, again, are there to serve and basically protect Hoosiers in all 92 counties. And the first thing I talked about was cybersecurity. So it's perfect that we're talking about that. I'm glad you brought me on to this podcast for your listeners. We talked about cybersecurity measures at the Department of Revenue when I was commissioner there last time we recorded. But as attorney general, and I'm just going to say this because I've been trying to promote this message to delegates, potential voters, anybody who will listen, the attorney general is uniquely positioned to protect Hoosiers in all 92 counties and focus on cybersecurity and preventing identity theft. 
Now, I think the last couple of years, the state has been doing a great job focusing on opioids addiction and really getting an all-hands-on-deck approach to curbing that problem because it, it doesn't discriminate, and it is in all 92 counties. But lingering behind the scenes is this epidemic of identity theft and people trying to steal people's Social Security numbers and retirement accounts. And I think, you know, five, six years looking forward is going to be something we are talking about every day in society because of all the data breaches that have been happening, all the information that's out there, and criminals are using it in ways that are very, you know, disruptive to society. So as Attorney General, we are going to place an emphasis on cybersecurity for the state of Indiana, and we are going to be there to serve as a resource and an ally for Hoosiers and basically say, let us help you put the pieces of your financial profiles back together when you've been a victim of identity theft or victim of a financial crime because of a data breach in the cyberspace or in the cyber sector. And right now, it's... You know, people get their identity stolen or they're victim of a cyber crime and they panic and they say, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I think every day people know that they need to call their credit card or their bank account and they need to freeze that information. But from there, it's a bunch of questions. Do I call the FBI? Do I call state police? Do I call the sheriff? What do I do? Uh, Call the credit bureaus, for example. I want people to know that they have a dedicated team at the Indiana Attorney General's office, who's their their public law firm, that's there to help them and to serve as a point of contact. They know they can call a number, for example, and talk to somebody. And that somebody is there whose whole you know exclusive job is to now help and to take those proactive next steps. Because I think in Indiana, we've done a pretty good job of swatting away cyber criminals. And when somebody tries to steal identities or steal revenue from our state at the Department of Revenue, we, we saw it every day. We've done a good job of, you know, knocking those people away. But what happens after that so that the, the repeat offenders don't keep coming back? We need somebody, and I think it's the attorney general's office, to be taking those proactive steps to go after the criminals and to work with local prosecutors, to work with local law enforcement, again, to be that ally and that resource. And so when data breaches occur, those companies need to be punished. If you're going to be out there as consumer protection uh, face of Indiana, you got to be real about it and you got to be serious about what it is you're going to do to protect our citizens. And I'm glad to hear that. And I will just say this. My biggest criticism of Governor Holcomb is cyber has been, I mean, he's supportive of it. I mean, I've seen a part of the the Executive Cybersecurity Council. My biggest thing is actually having it as a pillar of public policy and what the state is going to do. I know there's some other things that are more sexy and are more high profile that he's gone after from a a policy standpoint, but with as, uh, you know, I live and breathe cybersecurity every day, that having that as a major pillar to a platform is huge for me uh, to see it. I see what goes on behind the scenes. I was there from state police, from the Office of Technology doing it. So I know state government is doing things to protect, but it really, to me, where rubber meets the road is when we're talking about it, when it's 
a major platform uh, of the candidates because usually there comes dollars behind that. And again, there's a, a, a finite balance there on how much, you know, from a, a libertarian perspective of what needs to be done by the, the government versus the private sector. But the private sector's failing for the most part, especially these big companies. And until there is actions, whether that be fines or other types of penalties that kind of force them. And I love the private sector. I, I work in the private sector. And there are those that are trying to do what they can. But some of the bigger companies that just look at this, the expense of cybersecurity as that, as an expense, and not as protecting their customers, protecting their clients, something's got to drive them. So there's the, well, a bit of a balance there. That's where corporate responsibility yeah. comes into play, right? Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about this. And this is where... This is where now, you know, I'm just a candidate running for office, telling everybody who I am and what I'm about. I have a lot more freedom right now than I used to to be able to talk about things like this. And so this is where, you know, somebody listening is going to go, oh, he, you know, he isn't just sort of a rubber stamp or a puppet for the governor because I actually sat on the governor's cybersecurity executive council as a voting member active participant for the last three years after he created that. And I was one of the guys who was raising my hand a lot and asking questions, having to be more careful. Uh, if I went to a council meeting now, I'm, not, I'm no longer on the council, but if I went to one now, I'd probably be asking some more difficult questions because, and I've got friends in the Indian Office of Technology, I've got friends in Homeland Security and all over campus, but I've asked the question and been wondering for years now, you know, we talk about this a lot. What are we actually going to do about it and how are we going to invest to show that we're serious and to make sure that this problem doesn't continue to grow? Because government often is not looked at as innovative, uh, not as forward thinking. That A lot of times we're reacting to things. This is one of those areas where we've got to be more proactive. We've got to dedicate some resources. But again, not to take over and be this, you know, watchdog big brother for our citizens, but to help support and augment resources that need more. So when I look at, you know, you mentioned the governor's pillars and and that not being there, you know, he's he's elected to focus on workforce development and our state definitely needs that. And especially at a time when he was elected, that was a priority. You know, it was about getting, you know, skilled workforce and labor to fill these jobs that are out there. Uh, I have I have been talking about the fact that, you know, I think the next five, six, seven years, we're going to be talking about cyber in ways that people who are in it professionally every day are doing now, but on a much bigger scale. Um, because that's that's where society is going on the on the criminal side, right? When people are trying to rob and steal and cheat, they're doing it online. They're not doing it as much in the old traditional ways. And so as a state, if we want to protect our citizens, and if the attorney general is going to be serious about being, you know, the lawyer for the people who's there to protect and to promote and, you know, raise awareness of key issues, that's precisely why it's the first thing I put on my platform is cybersecurity, prevention of identity theft, and protecting Hoosiers, and then proactively assisting to put their profiles back together when they've been a victim of that. And so we have got to come together as a state 
to dedicate more resources. You know, we can say, hey, we're going to do at a state level, at a local level, we've got this council, we're going to do everything we can to promote awareness. And that's great. That's a piece of it. But until we use some resources, put our money where our mouth is to help folks put things in place to prevent cyber attacks, partner with the private sector to collaboratively build the infrastructure and provide the resources uh, to serve our state and protect our citizens, then we're not doing what we should be doing. No, I agree. And that's been my biggest criticism behind closed doors, too, is that, and I love what has been done. I think the, the foundation has been set with the council, but the council is at a point right now where we need more support from our elected officials. We have come up with the plans. We've got the collaboration from the public, private, and academia. We're now, if we don't have that support from our elected officials, you know, Nothing's going to get done. Um, and so well, I, and you, you you talk about the plan. That's right. I mean, the council's ready. They've done yeah. their they've done their duty, and said, here's what we collectively believe needs to occur. Whether it's operations or community awareness, local uh, local units of government, uh, state government. And then it's more of a, okay, now that we have this and we all agree that this needs to be a focus, the elephant in the room is financial resources. Yep. You got to throw money at this. And when, when citizens around Indiana, whether it's Republican Party or not, everybody kind of looks at that surplus of over $2 billion, and which is you know, the rainy day fund. People kind of say, can we use some of that money to attack this, you know, cybersecurity issue uh, where the state may not be best positioned? Uh, now, obviously, a lot of folks are saying, well, we need to pay teachers more and we need to do other things and we got to be careful with our reserves. And that's all true. But when we know sitting here today that this is going to be a major problem in the next five years, actually, you know, in some cases is now, but on a more global scale, when we know that sitting here today, we've got to start thinking about as policymakers, how do we want to start giving up those resources that are sitting there to be spent? Uh, and the revenue that we're raising, I can say, is a former revenue commissioner, uh, more money is coming into the state than has ever been before, and not because of an increase in taxes, just because when the economy is doing well, people are spending more. Um, the average, you know, average hourly wage, wage in the state of Indiana is increasing, increasing year over year. So there's more income, uh, there's more tax generated through income tax and through sales tax just naturally, not because the rates have increased. And so that surplus continues to grow. There's more money for lawmakers and policymakers to decide how to spend it. This needs to be a priority. And our legislative session is, is about ready to come to a close here in just about a week and a half. It's not a budget year, so I understand why that's not happening. Uh, you have to have that conversation sometimes with citizens to explain the difference between a budget session and a non-budget session. But January 2021 will start a budget session for our legislature, and they will be making decisions about how to allocate resources financially. And if we're not talking about, you know, cyber, and we're not talking about what the state of Indiana can do to now throw resources at this issue, then we're not doing our job. Well, and actually that conversation needs to really start happening after the session ends. That's right. Um, because either the, the summer studies that are going on, 
some of the races may you know have a, a, a be a factor on who will be there next year versus not but i mean there's going to be some turnover but not all of the the positions will be turned over so really that conversation with the legislature needs to happen now and and i will admit where i i haven't done my part by talking with enough legislature or folks in the legislature on these issues but we really that has been one of the missing pieces i know there's been some one-off conversations that have been happening but i think there needs to be a more directed, more um, focused, and and really deliberate conversation to how we can protect our citizens when it comes to cybersecurity. Yeah, and there's a new, uh, about a year or so, perhaps maybe two now, you know, there's a there's a lobbying group on behalf of tech sector uh, and tech companies purposely designed to go to the legislature to talk about some of these issues. So whether that's the proper uh, avenue to get this done and have these conversations occur, or whether it's just, you know, members of a, of a cybersecurity council, uh, you are absolutely right. Those conversations need to start happening once this session comes to a close. Because, you know, when the legislature gets back together uh, in January of next year or even before through their committees, the bills will have been filed and then they will be debating and working those bills through committee. But those conversations should be happening throughout the summer and the fall so that when we get to session, this is a topic that we are prepared to debate and they are prepared to decide how are they going to divvy up these resources. It won't be sort of raised for the first time, obviously, when they all come back together. Um, So you're absolutely right in that those conversations need to be happening throughout the summer so that we can build the foundation for that conversation. And hopefully, if I'm successful, uh, hopefully get the nomination, then get uh, put on the ballot for November. If we win that election, I'm going to be trumpeting that and talking about that from day one and building that team, hopefully reallocating resources because, you know, I'm not I'm not going to be trying to necessarily grow government. Um, but I think with an organization of 350 plus people, you've got ways to reallocate, realign. Um, there are there are most likely people sitting in the office right now that would love nothing more than to focus on this. I know there are some folks that are sort of dedicated to identity theft, um, but if we can use those resources and anybody in the tech division um, that already exists to say, come be part of this group, and we're going to fight this battle every single day, and you get to focus on this exclusively, instead of it just being one of your responsibilities in your day-to-day job, you get to say, I am fighting identity theft, and I'm working on cybersecurity issues for the state of Indiana as a public servant, and I'm proud to be able to do that every day, to go out and collaborate with people. And then I would love nothing more than to have folks say, I'm a case manager for you know these 50 people throughout the state who have had their identity stolen, and my job is to help them now and so that they don't have to worry and that they can go live their lives, uh, work their jobs every day, knowing that there's someone behind the scenes at the attorney general's office who's working and fighting for them to keep them protected. And so that that's something we will do from day one, whether it's recruiting new or reassigning existing resources. And we'll be very serious about that. And we will raise awareness to it when we're not working those files or, you know, handling a particular investigation. We will be out there just raising awareness as public servants who are 
in a position as a statewide elected official to do that. Because that's one of the calls of duty for public servants, too, is to raise awareness and to be talking to people throughout the state, even if you're not actively working on a particular issue or matter in terms of day-to-day operations. You know, raising awareness is part of the job, too. Nice. I That you have my 100% support on. <laughs> Again, that's something that I I haven't seen in any other candidate in the past few years. So uh, I greatly, greatly appreciate that. uh, Well, and I'll say, too, just for purposes of this race, and this is not a shot at anybody else. You know, I told you I'm not going to speak negatively of anybody, but you're not hearing this. You know, in terms of the cybersecurity, you're not hearing this talked about from any other candidate right now in the attorney general's race. And I would love for everybody to be doing that. Um, If anyone else starts to do that, then welcome to the party. (laughs) I mean, welcome to the discussion and the conversation, because there are all kinds of things that anybody running for attorney general's office should be talking about. There are responsibilities of that office. There are statutory functions, some of which we've talked about. But if one of them, which is a major statutory function, is consumer protection, and you as a candidate for statewide office asking for people to vote for you to be the person that will represent and protect them, if you're not talking about cyber in 2020, I don't know that you are fully invested in what is really going to protect the citizens of our state. That's awesome to hear. Well, we are well over the hour that we, we've scheduled. I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk about cyber. I know kind of did the, the whole build up there. Is there anything else that you want to talk about real quick in the closing minutes that we haven't got to uh, discuss at this point? Well, I'll just close. Again, I I appreciate the time. Uh, Very thankful for the opportunity to come on here and talk to your listeners. I hope that your listening audience only continues to grow. Uh, I've been listening, you know, off and on whenever I can. I often see who your guest is and what the topic is. And I'm like, oh, I got to tune into that because of the work that I've been doing at the Department of Revenue and cyber is a big part of it. I would just say, Uh, While cybersecurity and identity theft prevention is on the platform, and that's the first thing out of the box that we talk about, I've got other things that we are promoting and very passionate about, uh, things like child support delinquencies, tax evasion generally, um, you know, making sure that all 92 counties in Indiana are thought about and served and that we keep them in mind in terms of that consumer protection role fighting the opioid addiction, and also human trafficking. I mean, these are everyday issues in all of our communities, and these issues don't discriminate, whether it's a big city, a small town, it's all throughout Indiana, and the Attorney General's office is uniquely positioned to focus on these things, to fight these issues, many of which will become epidemics nationally, but they are hitting us right here at home. And I would just say, as a conservative Hoosier Republican, I look forward to the opportunity to continue building relationships and garnering that public trust. And, you know, when I say trust, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, things going on with the current situation of our attorney general. I mean this very much, whether I'm in this race as a candidate or not. When you think about Indiana and elected officials and public office, there's the governor and the governor's office, and that needs to be the most respected, trustworthy office of integrity, because you're basically the CEO for the state of Indiana. But the attorney general and the attorney general's office is right there, too. And it is a public trust. 
it has to be thought of and just known as a fact that it is being led with integrity and that it is credible, respectful, trustworthy, and there to serve. And I think we have some questions right now as to whether or not that's the case, but I'm going to bring that back and make sure everybody in Indiana knows that the Attorney General's office is there for them and that it is something that can be relied on as a source of trust and integrity. And I look forward to going through this process and hopefully securing the nomination from the Republican Party on June 20th at our convention. Well, Adam, good luck in the rest of the campaign to the convention. Good luck. Hopefully it works out in your favor. And if it does, I'd love to have you on post-convention and hopefully to talk about your race for AG in November. Oh, that's a firm commitment. I will Uh, definitely be back if we uh, secure the nomination. uh, Awesome. That's it for this week's show, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. And again, my apologies if the audio quality wasn't there or detracted from the experience of the interview. That's it for this week's show, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation between Adam and I. If you want to learn more about Adam's campaign and him individually, you can go to his campaign site at HoosiersForAdamCrop.com. I will have a link to his site in my show notes. He does have a Facebook page, I believe a Twitter account as well. Again, if you want to learn more, I will have that there for you to go give it a a look-see. If you want to chime in on the conversation between Adam and I, hit me up on Twitter at the underscore Polititech. Go to the show's Facebook page at CyberNowPod. Visit us on Twitter. You know how to get to us. And finally, if you think this show is worthy, go to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform to subscribe, rate, review, and don't forget to share the show. If you guys do all that, I promise I will be back again. Until then, have a great week. We'll talk to you soon.